Hi, I am Puneet Khurana. Me and my very good friends Manish Dhawan and Nuresh Mirani brings you Stoic Talks Season 2. We started Stoic Talks as an initiative to bring practical and implementable investing wisdom from some of the best minds in the business without getting selective or biased on the investment style or philosophy they follow. The idea was to learn various viewpoints, choose the nuggets that make sense and develop or enhance one's own investment style. Let's tune in and listen and learn with Stoic Talks. This particular episode of Stoic Talks has been recorded in collaboration with DSP Mutual Fund. With that, now let's welcome the guest for today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this new episode of Stoic Talks. This podcast is presented to you in collaboration with DSP Mutual Fund. Our guest today is Tom Basso. He's well-known name in the trend-following circles. You must have heard of him from the book of Jack Schwager, The New Market Wizards, and also Michael Covell's book, uh, Trend-Following Mindset. Now, Tom was a founder and president of Trendstat Capital, which was a hedge fund where he developed effective trend-following strategies and systems, which produced consistent returns uh, over various market cycles. Today in this interview, we will go in-depth on topics like psychology, how to build your own trend-following system, uh, position sizing for risk mitigation, and also hedging techniques for your trend-following systems. I'm very sure that this conversation will bring you a lot of insights. Tom, I'm really excited to have you on the show. Uh, so more so me because uh, uh, my friend Puneet here is a value investor and I am a trend follower. And uh, I, I rarely get a chance to interview trend followers, especially in our neck of the woods, because uh, for some yeah. strange reason, uh, there are not many trend following money managers here. So yeah. uh, really excited and uh, welcome to Strike Podcast. Well, good to be here. Great. Well, I read you up, Tom, and realized that it will be very difficult for me to ask you any insightful question today, as you have been so generous over the years in giving away all your knowledge. So almost everything under the sun has already been asked. Uh, So therefore, I won't really waste much of your time in introductory questions and straight straight away cut to the chase, okay? Uh, Okay. What I... I wanted to know from chemical engineer to money manager, and you chose a trend following as a way to do it. Uh, I wanted to know, did you consciously chose trend following as the way to money management? Or was this just serendipity and it happened the other way around? Well, you have to go back to my, uh, (laughs) when I was your age, uh, as I came out of chemical engineering, I was 22 years old. I'm 70 now, so that's uh, it's pushing 50 years ago. And there was no computers. Uh, the IBMs were on punch cards, and uh, there was no no live programming of anything. So <clears throat> armed with a calculator that would add, subtract, multiply, and divide, it didn't even have the one over function where you could do one over x. Uh, I sat and did a bunch of research with paper and pencil and charts. 
And I didn't even know what trend following was. I had no clue. There was, there was hardly anything to read. There was no internet to speak of. Uh, so you got to imagine I'm in a, a world or a little bubble by myself just looking at data and thinking like a chemical engineer would. So a good example that I use often in chemical engineering is, is if you have a, a stream of chemicals going through a heat exchanger and you need to have the temperature of that product, uh, that input to the next tank or reactor uh, to some perfect temperature. And if it's getting cold outside because nightfall has come in and the temperature of that stream because of the pipes being exposed to the air starts dropping, you have to turn on the steam maybe and bring the temperature back up to the proper temperature. So that is, a, I would call a simple instrumentation control loop. The same thing happens in the thermostat that you might have in your house. So you've got data coming in, which is the temperature. You've got a measurement. At some point, the thermostat says, we've gone too far, we have to take action. And isn't that kind of like trading? We, we go sideways, we ignore a lot of nonsense that, you know, the market's going up and down all day long. But then at some point, it's now moved far enough to where it catches our attention. And the indicators can then say, wait a second, now we got to do something. And I call that the buy-sell engine and the uh, an engine because in the engine of a car, it moves the car. And a buy-sell engine should move the trader to do something. It should be buying or selling. Uh, the rest I tend to ignore. So I think of it as an instrumentation control loop kind of where much of the market action is just noise and you ignore it. And then you set your points using indicators to uh, take action. And that turned out to be trend following. <laughs> I didn't know it at the time. Um, it was so long ago. Uh, I don't even know where the, you know, where the term trend following or when it was applied to a particular type of trading. But yeah, I'm a trend follower. I even trend follow now on five minute bars intraday sometimes if I have the time and desire. Uh, I can actually do some trend following on a short term basis uh, intraday. So trend following can apply to a lot of data. It just is ignoring the noise and taking action when it needs to. Great. Uh, Tom, even though there were no calculators and there were no computers, there was always Warren Buffett, uh, a popular personality in the media at that time. Uh, you know, very popular guy, Warren Buffett, as well as Carl Icahn. You never decided to take that route to investing, which is, you know, the activist sort of world or, you know, reading balance sheets or something like that, being an engineer. Was that ever ever on table? It, it was on the table very early. And uh, we had a conversation at lunch every day with a bunch of other chemical engineers that I used to work with. And we were all interested in the stock market. And uh, I eventually got interested in commodities as well and futures. And what when we talked about fundamentals, it, it seemed a consensus at the table. And I agreed with it totally that how are we, a bunch of chemical engineers sitting in St. Louis, going to be able to do better fundamental research on companies than these guys on Wall Street that have staffs of who knows how many people, uh, access to a lot of information that we would never have access to? 
uh, it seems hard that we would be able to anticipate and be ahead of those types of folks. But when they make their moves, that immediately shows up in the prices. So I might not be able to anticipate or be ahead of those folks, but I sure could see what, you know, the net effect of what they want to do is, and I could train myself to react very quickly. And by doing that, I end up jumping on to some major trends. And as we know, you know, some of the, the big winners that Buffett has done over the long run have had, uh, you know, multi-year or sometimes multi-decade runs. And so getting in a day or two late or a week late on a, on a good trend is not a big deal. You'll never notice it at the end of the trade because it's such a small fraction of the total profit. So I found that I could cover more bets, cover uh, more diversification, cover more companies, uh, more positions using futures that are diversified away from the stock market and uh, stabilize my performance and have a lot more predictability. Okay, great. Uh, so Tom, uh, you know, let's straight away jump to your investment framework and we'll come to, uh, you know, you have talked a lot about position sizing. In fact, I, uh, in the preparation for this particular talk, I read all three of books, three of the books which you have written. And it was fabulous for me because I, as Manish told you that I'm coming from a value investing world. Uh, I have studied and in fact implemented some momentum strategies uh, for last few years, but value remains my core strength. So you have talked a lot on allocation front, and in the previous answer, you also mentioned the ability to go and pick long trends and able to ride them. Uh, in my limited experience, of course, riding longer trends requires you to increase your time frame a lot. So. Uh, time frame of evaluation, so to speak. You can't do that on a five minute or even a daily chart or for that matter, even a weekly chart. <clears throat> so Agreed. can you take us through your buy sell engine as you call it in your books? Uh, how, how many buy sell engines do you have? How many markets do you trade? And in what time frames do you trade them? Uh, just a brief on that would be great to start with. Okay, uh, it's kind of a overall concept I would call all-weather investing. And what I do is I approach it from a lot of different views. The first is the number of indicators. Uh, I tend to use, let's see, one, two, three, I guess four or five, five, I guess, um, buy-sell indicators across nine strategies, one of which is intraday, and I only do that when I'm sitting here at the desk all day with nothing to do, and I've got, a, I've got a, uh, you know, a, another book that I'm finishing for the end of the year, roughly. It'll be coming out, hopefully, and uh, a project on a trading platform and other you know, major projects. So if I'm going to be stuck to the desk all day, I'll go ahead and fire up the computer next to me and I'll have a, a trading computer and I'll do that intraday. And for that, that would be one set of buy-sell engine. And that's basically to um, try to quickly get in on anything from an overbought or oversold standpoint. The other eight are daily strategies. And those would use four different uh, buy-sell engines. I tend to use... Uh, well, there's one that I created myself that is too complicated to explain verbally. I'd have to 
that would be another whole hour in itself, and I don't think I want to get into that. But the other three are pretty simple, and you can find them everywhere, uh, and that would be Keltner's, Dunchen's, and Bollinger. Those are usually standard on almost every trading platform I've ever seen. So on those, to try to diversify, I look at different time periods. So if I'm going long-term in its stock market, I view the stock market as an upside slanted vehicle because of the way inflation tends to push stock prices up over the long run. So what I do is I combo a 21-day for the upside and a 50-day for the downside, which makes it harder for me to get out of the stock, easier for me to get into it. So it slants it that way. But 21 days is approximately a month worth of trading days, getting rid of the weekends and holidays. And that's about the time frame that I like to concentrate on because as a retired guy, if anything's happening inside of a month, I'm probably not all that interested uh, for the most part. So my core sector allocation and my hedge program, that type of stuff is 21 and 50. Then uh, for shorter term trading, like where I do crypto futures, long and short, and if I do the NASDAQ uh, indices, indices uh, long and short, I'll use nine day with the same indicator pack. And I'll do the nine day up and down because I'm just picking up short term moves. I'm figuring things like stocks and cryptos are going to be very, very violent. They're not going to go long, long periods of time, typically. And uh, I'm just going to pick up those little movements on a shorter term, less than month basis. So nine days for that. Uh, on one strategy, which is done with both stock indexes and 26 different futures markets, I call it my counter trend. And I just put names on things so I can keep them straight, basically. It doesn't mean much to anybody else. Uh, the counter trend for me is a very, very short term. I, I, I read an overbought, over sold strategy uh, or a situation in any particular market, like the gold market or crude oil or anything I'm trading. And if it's overbought, I'm looking to sell it. And I try to sell it on a three-day basis. So it's uh, very, very short-term indicators. It's trying to jump in the other direction, so that's why I call it counter. But it's trend following because I'm waiting for the stop to be hit and getting in on the trend. So uh, I call it counter trend. It's you know it's just my term for it. The that would be um, the oddball that I think a lot of people would look at it and go, wow, that's not trend following. Uh, but to me, it is. I'm getting in on a trend. I'm letting it run as far as I can. That's trend following. Um, so these nine things, if you can imagine a cutaway of a piston of a car engine, and you've probably seen it where the one cylinder will be up and the other one's down and, and all of that going on. I've got different time periods, different indicators. I'm trading... Right now, I probably have, as we speak, somewhere close to 50 positions in the portfolio. And I can get all that done uh, inside of an hour at the end of the day, update all my orders. Yesterday, it took me 45 minutes. It was an easy day. Um, you know, and then I'm done. 24 hours later, I come do it again.
So a contradiction question on this, uh, Tom. Uh, uh, you have these nine strategies. Uh, are you equally divided your portfolio uh, on them? I'm talking about the notional exposure. And what I do is I use the total equity in the portfolio as a base load for each of those strategies. So each of the strategies is dialed in at an area uh, or at a level of exposure whereby um, they balance. So if I've got a three day, I'm going to have my stops a lot closer. I'm probably going to have a slightly bigger position and I drop the exposure level to maybe, you know, something like 0.2 or 0.3% of equity. So it's very low, but because of the risk per trade and the volatility is a little lower over a shorter term time frame, I can, I'll end up with a slightly bigger position there, but I know my risk is limited and I can handle that on a longer term basis. My stop is going to be farther away. My, uh, everything's going to be farther away. Risk is going to be greater. Uh, so what I'm going to end up doing with this, it's going to have a smaller position size. So I dial that in maybe at a half a percent risk to equity. And so I balance it through how I put on each individual position rather than trying to worry about um, taking the total strategy and saying, I'm going to give 20% of the money to this and 20% to that. I, the other thing it does, if you think of it mathematically, and this gets I think I alluded to it a little bit in the position sizing book that I did is when you use total equity and you have say eight different daily strategies going on, let's ignore the, the intraday one. You're going to have uh, undeniably uh, one of the strategies, maybe crypto futures is going nuts and I'm making just a ton of money there. Well, that's feeding my total equity. It turns out, and I've mathematically tested this, that because the total equity is going up from cryptos, and let's say my, my three-day counter trend strategy has had a bad week. So normally, if I was locking into a certain size of assets, that counter trend would, would end up having smaller and smaller positions because it was having a rough time. But in this case, it's using the total equity, and the total equity has been going up because cryptos are going nuts. So... I have more money to be able to put those counter trend positions on. And it turns out that next week is a good week for counter trend and cryptos are having a bad week. So what ends up happening is by rebalancing inside the computers uh, and allocating based on total equity, you're sort of taking from the rich and giving to the poor, sort of like Robin Hood or whatever. You're, you're ending up uh, improving your return to risk ratios, it turns out. In every study I've ever done, if you can rebalance your portfolio among strategies, you will end up helping your return to risk ratios. And I'm a big return to risk ratio guy. I'm, I'm retired. I really don't like having my portfolio go down 50% or something. I don't want to go back and be a money manager again. I'm enjoying retirement a lot. And so uh, I'm very big on return to risk. I'm not looking for the highest returns. I'm looking for uh, as good a return to risk ratio as I can get. And the ultimate would be is to have zero risk when measured across the entire portfolio of however many X strategies you have. And you have whatever return you get out of that. 
So return to risk has a denominator of zero and your return to risk is infinite. If I could get there, that'd be lovely. That's, that's a good goal to shoot for. I haven't gotten there yet, but um, it keeps my mind active and keeps me trying to come up with ways of uh, improving those return to risks. And that's kind of the challenge I always give myself. Yeah, that's, that's a great goal to have. Tom, do write about your current progress in your recent book, all right, so that we can at least be at par with you. Um, so just to, <laughs> just to summarize uh, what you have said so far, or maybe just uh, you know, putting my key takeaways, you're looking your nine strategies as one portfolio, and you're not doing that as okay, nine separate buckets of assets you have to manage separately. You're looking at total equity number, and you're doing your rebalancing based on the performance. If one is doing well or two are doing well, uh, when you are assessing your positions again, you are taking money off the table from the rich and giving it to your poor strategies on that particular week. Um, just one question which I had in my mind when you're talking about your stocks and the longer term positions, um, you said 50, 50 days as your sell engine. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, do you also have a place for aberrations where very big whipsaws in the middle of those 50 days, if, if it crosses certain percentages, you will make an aberration? Or you're saying, I will ignore all the moments in those 50 days. I don't care if they are big or small. Well, here I would tell you that when you have large movements in any market, whether it's futures, stocks, ETFs, exchange-traded funds, whatever, if you use something and look at the math of, say, a Keltner is a good example. You have a moving average that's the middle of the noise. So all the data over the last 50 days, you take it all and figure out what your average is. But the important critical part of a Keltner is the ATR, or the average true range, measures volatility. So if volatility increases because the market goes insane, then what happens to the two buy and sell lines on the Keltner? They, they go from here and they get more volatile and then they go like that. So they got the middle, the middle is the moving average, but the bars start getting wider apart. And what it does is it allows you more room for what I would call noise or normal market movement. Now, normal market movement then is a lot higher than it might have been a year ago, but it's normal for then. And so it automatically gives it more room. The 50 days just gives you the data length that you're using to calculate it. The volatility is measured and is adjusting the indicator on the fly. Same thing with Donchin. It's the top and bottom channel. The wider the movements, the wider the channel. Bollinger uses standard deviation. The wider the standard deviation of the movement, the wider the bars again. So they all have that similar philosophy, but uh, get to the final answer using different math, which is why I like to use them together many times. They're measuring different aspects, and I find that sometimes my closest indicator to give me a signal will be the Donchin, and sometimes it'll be the Keltner, and sometimes it'll be the Bollinger. I don't really care. That's measuring normal movement, and the first indicator to go over is indicating that I'm now getting out of uh, the noise and into something I need to take uh, pay attention to. Hi friends, I hope you are enjoying this episode so far. Uh, I just want to take a minute to thank the sponsor for this episode. 
Now, Stoic Talks was built on a premise of actionable insights. And detailed questioning without constraints is the only way to get that. And for that, you need independence. Now, when you're looking for somebody to partner with, you're not looking for somebody just who share your ethos, but who also will promote this independence of you know, asking fearless questions without any hesitations. So when we were looking for someone like that, the obvious choice for us was DSP Mutual Fund. As I have known their team, I have worked with their team for a long period of time. Now, if you're an investor, there's a high chance that you are already familiar with at least some, if not all, of the excellent research that they put in public domain. There are reports like Netra on the macro parameters. Then there is a report called the transcript, which gives important snippets from the Concord transcripts and discusses them. Then the annual report Nectar, uh, the Navigator, and many such excellent reports, which I enjoy reading and is enjoyed by many practitioners in the investing community. So we are extremely happy to be working with such a team. They completely agree with our vision for Stoic Talks, and I wholeheartedly want to thank them for supporting this episode. If you aren't already, I would highly recommend you to follow them on Twitter with their Twitter ID as at the rate DSPMF. And you can also follow them on their YouTube channel where they put a lot of insightful videos regularly. Thanks and enjoy listening to this show. Great, Tom, uh, you know, one of the biggest commandments uh, of trend following is to let your winners run and uh, not do anything uh, with them. Uh, Ed Sekota mentioned that in his song as well. Now, I have two-sided questions on that aspect, and uh, it's the psychological side of it is what I'm interested in. It's easier said than done that you once you catch a trend, you're basically supposed to ride it. How do you develop that mental fortitude to digest those profits and kill the urge to take them off the table? What I try to do is to think of an equity curve and how trend following is going to affect that equity curve. So in a trend following sense of things, you're basically buying the high because you're buying as the thing is breaking out and going on a trend. So let's take an example. We're buying and, you know, off goes the trend and everything's great and we're making money. So that's directly feeding your equity. You know that your stop is somewhere below where the market is and you're trying to move that up as much as you can justify given the noise that is normally in the market. You can't obviously have a small profit and then move your stop up right next to the where the prices are. You'll just get taken out with the stop. So you have to give it enough room. That's for, you know the 50-day example that I used a little earlier would be uh, you know the type of thing where I'm giving it enough room to move and it could pull back and, and then run again and I might be in a position for years. So I realize now the math though that as the trend following model gets to what is going to end up being the highest peak and I won't know where that is because I'm not that smart. The trend following model stop is way back someplace. I've got risk and I know that any point in time I know what my risk is and I know that that amount of risk sooner or later is going to become realized and is going to f come across uh, and subtract my equity. 
So I've already mentally anticipated that that amount of hit is going to happen to my equity from this trade that I'm in right now, and I've already anticipated it. Now, mentally, that helps a lot because now you can say to yourself, I'm, I'm prepared for it. I know what the risk is. I know how much it's going to be. I can actually put a number on it if I need to. I mean, as it starts coming back, I might be able to move my stop up a little bit more depending on my strategy, or I may not. But whatever happens, I know that I've got to go from that peak back to the stop to get myself stopped out. And I got to do that across a portfolio. So let's say you've got 10 stocks and they're all have a certain amount of risk. And with correlations being what they are, many times all 10 of your stocks will go back to that stop. So, you, but again, you can calculate that and know exactly what that amount is going to be and mentally prepare yourself for it and realize that that's the uh, part of the uh, trend following game. Now, how do I myself look at that and and do something with that information. I personally have been in many, many trades, including the famous silver trade that Jack Schwager um, documented in the uh, New Market Wizards chapter on me, where you get way ahead on a position and then as a good trend follower, you just hang on for dear life because it really is going to now come back and take you out in the stop. Well, what I do is I measure that and I set limits that are within my own mental framework. So in the case of, say, a futures position, let's use some simple numbers. I, these aren't the exact numbers I use, but it's not that important. You can dial this in wherever you as a trader want to dial it. But let's just use a simple 1% of equity risk level to get into a uh, position on gold or something. Now, gold goes up, and nobody cares in the early stages of a move. The emotions are not there. There's not news about it. Nobody cares. Now, one day after another, gold keeps moving, and all of a sudden, people start noticing it, and there's an article, could gold you know, double in price? And there, you, know, you start seeing little news and interviews about it, and, and on the morning TV shows, they're talking about, wow, gold price is up for the second month in a row. And everybody's now missing gold and wanting to jump on. The trend is very mature now. Volatility has gotten larger. Emotional content of that market has gotten very high. So the swings are much greater. The risk, uh, the, the prices can move faster than your stops can move. Your stops are trying like crazy to keep up with the market, but they're still way the heck back down there. So what I do is I say, well, in reality, if my equity is X, whatever it is, how much am I willing for gold to affect that equity negatively? No matter what happens, as a human being and as a trader, what, what's my to, you know, pain tolerance? And I might say, all right, I'm willing to give 2% of my equity to let gold go as far as it can go. Well, what that means is I can pre-calculate. I can say, here's my stop. Here's where we are in the price. Uh, I know that uh, 2% is my make maximum tolerance. I already know my equity. I can do a simple math and say, how many contracts of gold do I need to hold right now to limit my losses to 2% of equity? And if I have 3% of equity, I peel off 1% of my positions to get back to what 
I should have, that's my pain tolerance level. And what that allows me to do mentally is very, very important, I think. And a lot of tr pure trend followers that don't do this miss this point is that over the long run, if you ever come to the point where the pain gets too much and you have to abandon what you're doing, you've just thrown out a lot of good work. Uh, you've really not really helped yourself because you're no longer in the trading business. You're no longer a trend follower. You're now out searching for something else. There was nothing wrong with what you were doing. It's that you put yourself in such a leverage position that it was beyond your tolerance for pain. And some, the, the Richard Dennis school of people, uh, the original turtle, turtle traders, uh, is that you should be able to tolerate that pain. But if you're a professional money manager like I was for 28 years, your clients do not have your own even tolerance for pain. My clients typically had less tolerance for pain than I do. I, even now in retirement, have more tolerance for pain than the way I ran Trendstat because my job as a money manager was to manage their money, not mine. If I wanted to go along for the ride, I could, but a lot of money managers think of it the other way. They say, I'm going to do this and my clients can come along for the ride. That's putting a little weird spin on your business because your clients can't do what you can do or else they'd be doing it for themselves. And when they don't understand and they get nervous and they get panicky, they pull the money and then you're not a money manager anymore. So my attitude is, is to try to control that exposure so that you can always stay within your mental comfort zone and keep it going and keep it going for the next 30 years. And that's what I think uh, the position sizing book talks about a bit and uh, why I've done that for, I don't even know, 20, 30 years now I've been position sizing. It's and, very and important. Just for the benefit of you know the, the listeners also, uh, your position sizing is not limited only to the risk value or the amount of the money which you are willing to risk, but also on volatility and margin. Can you very briefly tell that part also so that that closes the loop on your risk management strategy? Okay. Um, well, risk is an obvious one because as prices get farther away from your stop, your risk per share of stock or per contract of futures contract or per million dollars of a currency or whatever you want to you know, use as your, uh, your instrument level is getting greater. So that's one that's obvious to control. The second one is not as obvious as volatility. Volatility, and I use uh, average true range for my volatility. It's a simple, easy calculation and therefore uh, reasonable. And it's basically the, the, the average movement from the 24-hour high to the 24-hour low averaged over a period of time. That's the simple definition. And so the farther things move, the more volatility you have. Well, the reason I try to control that is I ask myself, if I'm sitting here looking at my screen and my portfolio's, you know, up or down 10% in a day, am I going to be okay with that? If it's up 10%, am I going to get overly giddy and want to go out and celebrate that night? Or if it's down 10%, am I going to be stressed out and have a sleepless night? So I try to set volatility limits on each position, and then I can control the volatility of the whole portfolio. 
And by doing that, I keep the movements more measured and hopefully going in my direction and I'm just plodding along, I'm making it a little bit more boring. So volatility as a percent of equity is another way I try to control positions. The third way you mentioned is margin. And what you have to do with margin, that comes into play on things like euro dollars and some other very quiet uh, short-term debt instruments tend to do this where they uh, are very non-volatile for long periods of time. The risk is not that high. And if you did your position sizing calculation, you would say, oh, well, you know, low risk, low volatility, I can just load up this thing and, and put it in the portfolio. So you have to cap your exposure uh, just so that if your risk and volatility is failing to pick up something, but the margin, uh, the exchanges know, hey, this could go crazy any moment. So we're going to have this much margin, or in the case of a stock, this much margin to control the stock. You want to make sure that that's an override to keep you from being super overexposed to a, a black swan event that, you know, just war breaks out, somebody launches a nuke, somebody... The Fed Reserve just, you know, raises the interest rates in the U.S. by 2% or some weird, you know, a, a news item that just shocks the markets and everything goes nuts. Uh, that's kind of an override. So by using all three of those and taking the smallest answer of the three, if risk says, uh, okay, do 10 contracts of gold or oil or whatever the it is you're trading, uh, uh, 1,000 shares of stock, and... And then if your volatility calculation says do 800 shares of stock, but the margin says to do 600 shares, then do 600. I always err to the conservative side. And, and uh, you also have a cap on the maximum. And how, how frequently do you rebalance this? And what is the max? So only when you reach your maximum, do you reevaluate that position? How does it work for that? Every uh, position has a maximum. And my portfolio has a total maximum. So uh, that gets calculated every day. And if those limits are exceeded, then I call it that a risk alarm or a volatility alarm or a portfolio alarm or whatever. That level says peel off enough positions to get back down to the acceptable level. So that happens daily. Yeah. And, you know, just to... Uh actually a plug in here that I really suggest readers to or the listeners to actually read the book. In the book, you have mentioned some scenarios uh, in what certain scenarios, what risk calculations, what happens at different levels, uh, and you have shown your computation. And it's a, it's a very small 70-odd page book, so mm -hmm. it won't take a lot of time for people to read it. So it's a must-read for all the, all the trend followers and for anybody who wants to understand position sizing. Really, really helpful book. Uh, Tom, let me take you to a hypothetical scenario, right? As of now, you are doing 19 different markets, from what I've read and, you know, what I've heard so far. Uh, uh, 26 now. I've expanded oh, it. Okay. <laughs> okay. I so, don't like to be bored. <laughs> yeah. So, 20, <laughs> so 26 different markets. Um, yeah. And obviously, a large amount of diversification comes from the share size and the number of markets you are in. Uh, but as a money manager, not everybody has a choice to do multiple asset class, right? So... Imagine yourself being in the shoes of a money manager who, let's say, only have mandates for stocks. And stocks, by their very nature, are heavily correlated you know, to each other. Uh, 
put yourself in that shoes, how will your risk management change uh, given that the correlation between the individual assets is going to be very high? And I'm sure right. you never started with 19 assets. I'm sure you started with one or two. So you will have right. some practical experience there also. Uh, the answer, if I was put into that little box, which I would hate to be in <laughs> knowing what I know, um, would be to uh, probably come up with a way to hedge. And the reason I say that is when you have, say, just a simple example, 10 different stocks, some stocks are going to be very highly liquid. They might be the most liquid instrument on the entire exchange. So you can get in and out, you know, 10 times a second it's being traded. Uh, things like SPY, uh, which is the largest exchange traded fund in the U.S., which is based on the Standard Poor's 500, I think trades between 30 to 50 at least times a second. And you put that in perspective, you think, all right, well, if I've got 100 shares of SPY, it just gets gobbled up in those 50 trades. You're never going to have a problem getting in and out of it. On the other hand, one of your 10 stocks might be this $2 little gem that uh, you discovered through your value screening. And I don't know, it might be a pharmaceutical company that's just got the next best drug that's ever been created for mankind. And then you're hoping it goes to 200. Uh, that's not going to be a very liquid position. So getting in and out of it and what I would call attacking your risk is a term I use a lot is difficult because the position is the position. You can't really easily get out of it totally. You can't, you know, maybe you can buy more, but you don't want to buy it higher. You've already own it. You know, you've got the right position size. So you struggle with what to do with the market risk. So say the, the whole stock market's going to go into a downswing and it clearly is giving signs of a downtrend from a, a trend measurement standpoint. If you have something like, in my case, what I use is the Standard Poor's 500 stock futures, it's very highly liquid. And for a very small amount of margin, I can sell one contract and cover $100,000 to $200,000 worth of equity exposure, and I don't have to get out of my stocks. I can just leave the stocks there. I've now gone short the futures contract, so I'll use my, my hands in the camera if I can. Uh, my palm is where profit's made. The back of the hand is loss. If we've got a stock portfolio that's sitting there uh, that is basically uh, stocks go up, I make money. Stocks go down, I lose money. If I put in place something right next to it called a uh, like a, a some kind of a hedge, then what happens is no matter which way the market moves, up or down, I'm making it on one side, losing it on the other, and the both two things are highly correlated to each other. But the one that I'm using for the hedge is highly liquid. So I can put it on, take it off every fourth, fifth day if I need to. So no matter how volatile, no matter how what I'm trying to do, I don't have to affect that core stock portfolio. And I can just adjust my exposure. I could do half exposure. Like say you've got... I don't know, a million dollars worth of stock, you could do a half a million dollars worth of hedge and leave the other half unhedged if you, if uh, if there was some reason to do that. So you can dial in your exposure wherever you want and you can do it very easily and very inexpensively without having to suffer going and doing actual stock transactions. So that's the way I would approach that problem. Um, 
but beyond that but would you would you change the size of the hedges also with the phase of the market so let's say uh, market in 2009 uh, you know post the crisis versus a peak market let's say uh, 2007 would you have different strategies for hedging at you know at various stages you could be in trend uh, in both the cases but in one case the trend has just started in one case the trend is pretty long uh, how would you how would you you know position when, that? when the in if the trend is fairly long then what's happened is the trend following model for the hedge should have already gone over if it's going down for a long time uh, you know the, the the trend following model should give you the signal somewhere close to the start of the trend and then a, after that you just let it go uh, so i don't I guess I'm not smart enough to realize whether or not we are going to, like right now, we have a down day in the stock markets here in the U.S. I don't know. Is that the third stage of a bear market? Is it just a continuation of something that might last for the next decade? I mean, the Depression back in 29 lasted through, what, the 30s and into the, almost the 40s or something? So who knows? I I let the market do what it wants to do, and my job as a trader is to go along for the ride. So when you look at it that way, my exposure, if I think that I'm in a downtrend and I've got long exposure that's at risk, I'm going to hedge that exposure 100% all the time, every time. Just makes it simple mentally on me. And at that point, I'm whatever the market does at that point, if it goes up, I'm losing on my hedges and I'm making money on my stocks. If I'm going down, I'm losing money on the stocks, I'm making money on the hedges. Either way, I am just sitting here watching <laughs> the action and and waiting for the indicators to tell me that the, the direction is now shifted back to the upside. I can remove the hedge, let the stocks, uh, as I call it, let the horses run, take the reins, let go of the reins and let the horses run. Uh, that's kind of the way I look at it. I'm taking off the hedge, which is holding back the portfolio, and I'm letting the horses run. The stocks can run with the up market and enjoy the, the ride that way. So that's my attitude towards how to attack the risk. And I think a lot of people, you know, I, I, I use that term. The, the attacking risk thing is important mentally, too, because if you think about it, a lot of uh, investors and traders try to um, say they're conservative. You know, they put this label on themselves, conservative. And conservative means, okay, I, I'm a value guy. I try to find good companies that have good solid balance sheets and all that good stuff. And all of that is good and fine. But what ends up happening ultimately is uh, risk wants to come and visit you. If you have the most conservative stock in the world and it's going to last, it's going to be around after the next depression. But if you go through a depression and, and most stocks go down 90% on a dollar, 90%, what is your conservative stock going to be at that point? Should you need to liquidate that and have that money? It's going to be down a bunch, maybe not 90, maybe 50, maybe 60. Maybe you drastically beat the, the, the market, but in reality, you lost a bunch of money. And that's not helping the cause. So my attitude is to observe risk and not passively just say, I'm going to buy and hold and I'm going to just last it out. And I'm going to, you know, this is a good company. It'll survive and all that. 
my attitude is why not attack that risk? You, you see the risk is there. There's always going to be market risk. There's going to be individual instrument risk. There's going to be, uh, you know, risk of bankruptcies and news risk. There's lots of different risks out there. Why not try to get a, a bit of an assessment of what kinds of risk are you going to be potentially exposed to over time and actually attack them somehow? And that's where the hedging comes in because hedging is an, a positive action that you're taking to squash down risk. And it puts you a bit more mentally in control of the situation as opposed to just sitting back and saying, well, I don't know what the market's going to do, but you know, I'm just going to be a good long-term investor and, and uh, be conservative and not worry about it. You know, that's, that's not a plan. I don't think. So, uh, Tom, uh, on the topic of hedging, I actually went to one of your webinars uh, and where you shared something as simple as uh, uh, basically a donchian on SPX. Uh, I wanted to know, does something as simple as that works? Because uh, my concern was that what if I'm incurring double the losses, let's say a whipsaw on the hedge and... Uh, and the trend following not working out on the long portfolio? Uh, not quite, because when before you put on the um, before you put on the hedge, you lost some to get to your trend following signal. So that was a loss. But once you put the hedge on, no matter what happened from there, you didn't lose anything. Even if it goes back and whipsaws, your portfolio goes up, your hedge loses. And now you take it off and the stocks keep going, then you're fine. If if you stay in a sideways forever and you keep putting them on, put, taking them off, putting them on, taking them off, you're going to have multiple whipsaws and that does cost. But if you've done your job on the stock side and you know, you've got your good value stocks that are every time you go through the cycle, the stocks are holding up really well and going higher and higher, you should be okay. You still, what, I don't mind a 5% a five loss or a 3% loss or an 8% loss on a portfolio. What I detest, especially in retirement as I am, uh, would be a 50% loss. So if I'm sitting there uh, doing nothing and I'm watching this thing go down every day or week or month or year and my value is cut in half, that's not acceptable to me. If I take a small loss, it, it to me, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know if, if you guys have this over there, but uh, fire insurance, you buy fire insurance so that in case you have a fire, you can replace the building or, you know, uh, fix the damages from the smoke and the fire. But you hope you never have to use it, right? You, you, you're paying money for the fire insurance, but you hope you don't ever have to make a claim on the insurance. Kind of hedging is the same way to me. I'm, I know over time there's going to be times that it's definitely going to cost me. There's times where I actually end up making a profit, but it's not very often. That's during very bad bear markets. But what it does over the long run is it preserves my assets so that instead of being down 50 and having to come back 100%, just get to back where I was. That's the math. You know, if you're down 50, you got to make 100% on the 50% to get back to your original 100%. If I can hold that to down 10, down 15, it's a whole lot easier to get back to new equity highs when that all sorts itself out. So I think the 
the key game you're playing is to try to uh, make sure you attack risk enough to make sure that you don't ever get that huge deterioration in your portfolio. And that just helps you over the long run mentally. It also helps you math-wise in that you don't have to, if you're down 10%, you just need to come back 11% to get back to break even. Well, that's doable. Coming back 100%, that's a lot of work. There might be years of work. Yeah, yeah that's very insightful, uh, Tom, to look at hedge as, as an insurance cost and not as a standalone strategy. Because if I look back at my back test, uh, the, the hedge has probably worked on a couple of occasions only, the corona crash and the 2008. Apart from that, net net it loses money, but it gives you uh, a good night's sleep and it acts as a very nice balance for your long, long uh, exposure. I have a friend that's Lawrence Bensdorp, and you might even want to interview him. He's an interesting guy. He's out of Portugal these days. He speaks six languages. He has a term that I just absolutely love. It's perfect to tell me descriptively and with a great picture what I'm trying to do. If you have a track record and everybody's seen it, the graph goes up the page and then it goes down into a drawdown and it makes new highs and then another drawdown and then new highs, he calls those potholes in, you know, potholes in the road. His job as a trader, he's, he now runs 50 strategies. I don't think I'll ever get to that level, but uh, filling the potholes means putting two strategies together or three or four or nine or 50 as he does and trying to fill those holes. So ask yourself, if I've got uh, a picture of the S&P 500, let's say, or the Dow Jones Industrial is going back to 1950, and you can put it over on the wall, step back, and you can see right where the potholes are. Now, if I give you your hedging strategy, and I have you run those two strategies together, are those potholes as pronounced as they were? You've somewhat filled the pothole not necessarily totally. And you may have diminished some of your returns when you had good times. You might not have because you put the hedge on and took it off. You took a loss. You actually cost yourself some money, but you still made some money on the stock side. So it, you know, it paid for it and then some, but you probably have less return, but you also more importantly have less pothole. And when you do that, if you look at your returns, which may have gone down a little bit, and you look at your risk, which may have diminished quite a bit, the return to risk ratio, because your denominator is going down, is getting better and better. So your mental processes are easier to deal with, and the consistency of your performance is easier to deal with. So I would encourage one of the mistakes people make with hedging and a lot of strategies, really. Um, if you look at some strategies that Lawrence runs, because uh, do, I'm doing a seminar with him in about three weeks up in Vegas. And uh, so I get to listen to him talk about a lot of stuff too. He gets to listen to me. Um, but, you know, he'll, he'll tell stories about stuff where he'll, he'll do a, a strategy, one of his 50, and it, it basically barely makes a profit. It's almost break even, but it's designed specifically to go against certain market conditions that help to create a pothole with some of his other strategies. So what he, when he, by adding it in, his return to risk ratios go up, his line gets smoother, 
his consistency is better, his mental processes are better, that is what he's striving to do. And I think that's something that where a lot of traders make a mistake of just running the numbers on any one strategy and saying, well, this doesn't have much expectancy. It doesn't really produce a profit or, or worse, hedging might actually lose money over the long run since you're always going short the stock market and the stock market generally has gone up over the decades. You would expect that strategy to always be swimming against the current. But in reality, when you if you're timing it on and off and you're putting it together with a full exposure of 100% stocks, you're probably filling the potholes and your return to risk ratio climbed. True, true. I've read his book, uh, Tom, uh, after you recommended it. And in his book, he's actually shared uh, six of those strategies uh, with, uh, with each and every detail. So that was very insightful. Yeah. Great. Uh, Tom? Even though, you know, whatever explanation you have given so far, I am able to get the answer of the question I'm going to ask. But uh, in your books, you have talked about uh, positioning down your stocks when they have, once they have run up because either the size of the, you know, the, the risk position has increased or the volatility is increasing or whatever the reasons are, and you're scaling down your position to manage your risk. Uh, but there has been, hasn't been any mention of adding to your winning positions. Uh, I and you know many trend followers tend to do that, or at least uh, you know they say that what the positions are working, you need to add more and more capital <laughs> to get the best out of those those positions. And I come, I see you are doing completely opposite of that. Um, what is your take on that? Um, I ran a study at Trendstat, and it was a very involved study that involved measuring twenty different markets and uh, taking our standard buy sell engine and getting a buy or a sell marking that down as day zero going into the historical databases and knowing full well what that transaction that trade that I was going to get in on that day zero was going to end up doing in its entirety so I mapped out the percent return from inception of day one day two day three all the way to day X and now we're out of that trade. And, you know, the, the, we're getting out of it based on the stop losses moving up and standard trend following. So if you think about it, the day you get in, you know your return to risk ratio with 100% hindsight because you know what that trade and every other trade's doing. And you can put the return on the trade divided by the risk that you still have on the trade because you know where your stop loss is at that point. And so what we did is we databased all the day zeros, the day ones, the day twos, the day threes, and then we did it all the way through the end of the trade. So on average, we could tell what were the return to risk ratios every point from the start to the finish of the trade. And it turned out that on average, you never have as good a return to risk ratio as you have the day zero. When the trend following trade goes over, that is the position you should size your position perfectly at that point for a good return to risk ratio and then manage it throughout the trade but adding to a position with a lower return to risk ratio doesn't make sense to me so i don't add to positions is that study public uh <laughs> oh heck well, i 
No, <laughs> and it's long gone. I, I, uh, I turned off the computers in 2003 that we were running, and I don't have any access to any of that anymore. But um, I do vividly remember the study, so I can tell the story at least. But no, it's not done. If somebody wants to do it, I'm happy to consult on it or you know give you some ideas. Yeah, sure. Uh, and you guys can do the heavy lifting on the programming, but yeah, it's pretty straightforward. You basically take every trade from start to finish, day zero all the way to the finish, and you know what the re you know what the return's going to end up being. You know what the risk is every point in time. Just do the daily return. Day zero return to risk is this. Day one is this. Day two is that, and you'll just see the return to risk ratio declining because you know you're getting closer to what is going to be the end of the trade. I've never had a trade that that stayed I stayed with forever so there's never been an infinite profit trade uh, there's always been a finite profit trade and risk is finite as well so you can always calculate that and we just did it and on average I mean yeah, there's always exceptions I mean gold has a run it pulls back your risk gets diminished and it, it runs even farther on the second run than it did on the first and uh, you have a long enough run to where it works out but most of the time, average, being what an average is, uh, it is diminishing over the life of the trade. But then that, you know, brings me to the second part of the question, which is when you do take the money off the table uh, mm -hmm. to balance your positions, um, again, I, I understand that you are running 26 markets now and 19 earlier at the time when I read the book. Uh, you will almost always have some place to put that money to use. Uh, very rarely you would need to go into cash because some market will be showing some promise at one point in time. Uh, right. But if you are, again, in that hypothetical box of managing a particular asset, would you then recommend to move to cash if you're not finding positions? Or in that case, would you say, let the winners run? You know, you can avoid the trimming part and your hedges are already no, there in I place. Would. I would uh, I would use a short-term cash instrument with paid to interest and try to work the money on a very safe basis that didn't have market risk. And yeah, if you're not finding suitable alternatives, then you're going to increase your cash. When you do your hedge trade, I would uh, just do it on the exposure that you have, not on the total size of the portfolio, including cash. I would, I would only look at the uh, risk side of the portfolio that you're trying to hedge. Oh, okay. So Makes what sense. happens to me sometimes, this is a good example, I trade 20 different sector exchange traded funds. That's one of my strategies. So I trade them long, short, 21 days to get in, 50 days to get out. Right now I'm running 25% invested. So I've got five positions out of potentially 20 that I trade. So the exposure I have with my hedge may have been put on when I had 65% uh, or something invested and I try to ongoing change my exposure to the hedge so that it sort of balances, but sometimes it'll get out of whack and ten tendency is that the sectors hit their stops and go to cash. My hedge then hasn't been adjusted fast enough and I end up net short for short periods of time and that's actually great in a bear market. I'm picking up profits on my hedges compared to what I'm losing over on the stocks uh, or ETF side. So 
yeah, I, I just go to cash. I, I'm sitting here right now in this bear market with, I don't know what it is. It's probably um, 70% cash or something. It's oh, wow. Wow. That's, but, that actually is a surprise to me. I was not expecting that number. No, well, it's probably you're confusing it with the Indian markets, Uh U.S. is in, in, in a real grip, it seems. Yeah. Sure. Uh, Tom, you know, uh, you have written three books in different intervals. Uh, actually, two books yourself. I'm not talking about your golfing book. Let's keep that separate for now. <laughs> but uh, two investing books, uh, one in 94 and now in 2019. Uh, I, I, I wonder how things have evolved between those two books. See, I have, I have the benefit of reading them to see how it changed and how things have evolved. But for the benefit of the listeners, how have your investing evolved in between those two books? Well, between the two books, I would say, first of all, when I wrote the first book, which is Panic Proof Investing, we were in the world of PCs then. Desktop PCs was the largely the computerization level. Uh, there wasn't as many uh, electronic exchanges like Globex and uh, the ECBOT uh, and uh, the NYMEX uh, automated systems and COMEX, ECOMEX, a lot of these markets now have become more electronic. But back in those days, there were still, you know, physical pits and archaic ways, a lot of mistakes made by traders in terms of trying to get an order to a floor, get it executed, get it back and make sure everybody did everything right. So back in those days, things moved, uh, it seems to me, a lot slower. And I think that that's been the biggest uh, that change that I've noticed is the speed of everything just gets faster because <clears throat> computers allow you to do things as a human being faster than it used to. Uh, to do a trade back in the 1970s on a corn trade, let's say, I would call my broker. The broker would uh, fill out a ticket, take it down the hall to a teletype. Teletype operator sends it to the floor. There are people on the floor get that and hand it to a runner. The runner takes it out to the pit. The pit guy then executes the trade, tosses the, he marks down who he traded with, t throws it down on the floor. The runner grabs it from underneath the pit, runs it back to the teletype, teletype to the office in St. Louis in those days. And then they give it down the hall to the broker. The broker calls me a half an hour later and tells me that I got my corn fill. And nowadays, if I hit one button, transmit, there'll be a little beep, a uh, little block will go over on the bottom right side of my screen saying it's already executed. It's a different world. So that's the, the biggest difference. The second thing I have matured over the years, I'd say, is that I realized that because of electronics and computers, I don't really want to limit myself to just stocks or just this or just that. The more I can diversify by market, the more I can diversify by time period, the more I can diversify by indicators, the smoother I can make my results. So I don't put on this label to myself of I'm a stock trader or I'm a future, futures trader or what when I retired back in 20, 2003, Probably most people thought of me as a currency trader because that was the bulk of our business. I traded like $600 million of currencies and all of the rest of the stuff was like 
100,000 tops, something less than that. Or I mean, 100, 100, excuse me, 100 million, 600 million and 100 million. So I mean, it was one sixth of my business was all this other stuff. And now I trade currencies by way of the futures, but I don't think anybody thinks of me as a, uh, a currency trader anymore. I certainly don't view myself as one. And when I, you know, the, the new book coming out is going to be the all weather trader. That's kind of describe my life and how I figured out a lot of these things. And I think that's been the evolution of me learning how to fill the potholes, how to diversify by time period, diversify by market and smooth out the results, keep pushing the return to risk ratio up. That, that's been probably the last 50 years. Wow, that's good. That's, that's really insightful for me. Uh, yeah, Tom, I wanted to know that uh, trend following across various asset classes is like watching paint dry. Uh, the feedback loop is very slow. When would you know that your edge in the stat strategy has stopped? You cannot really wait for the for the PNL to tell you that because the feedback loop is so slow. Do you? Yeah. The, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Well, it's yeah. a good question, uh, and it's one that's it's almost a little bit of an art to try to figure out the answer to that. But here's I'll take a shot at it. Um, a lot of people who get into the technical side, you know, they hear me talking about computers and trading platforms and all that, and and so they go out and they, you know, they're programmers or they learn programming and they start, you know, programming all this stuff. And, you know, over the last six months or something, their trend following models produce losses. So they immediately jump to profits and losses as something is not working anymore. And that is not the way I look at it. I, I try to break historical simulations very strangely down into up markets, down markets, and sideways markets. So let's take a simple trend following model. Let's, let's make it a um, 20 day against 100 day moving average of some stocks. Okay. Let's take a, um, let's take then a market, and we're gonna time it. It's a liquid stock. We can get in and out any, any day we want, any second we want. So in the up markets, what would you expect a trend following model to do with a stock that was highly liquid in an up market. You would expect it to make money. Sure. So as long as that part of the simulation that I would rate as an up market was making money, it's not broken. Then I would say, okay, let's look at this down market over in this section of the history. What would you expect a trend following model to do during a down market? You would expect it to probably sell out, be in cash, and for the most part, have a line across on equity, on the equity curve. You wouldn't be making money. You wouldn't be losing money. You would be making nothing yeah. because you've timed out of it. So you'd look at those periods and say, ah, there's the line going across the page. That's not broken either. Then you'd look at the sideways. Now, what would you expect with a trend following sideways? You would expect Dang. whipsaws. It jumps up, jumps down, jumps up. You're getting in, getting out, getting in, getting out. Probably smaller losses than normal, but as it's going sideways, you're going to take some of those and you're going to have a drawdown. 
So you look for the sideways periods and you look at the drawdown and you say, that's fully expected as well. So is anything broken? Okay. And you just keep going. Uh, that's that's the way I look at it because if you try to put a number to it or try to run a simulation and and try to somehow say this is no longer valid, uh, then you're basically saying to yourself that there will never be trends again. And if you believe that, then okay, then you shouldn't be a trend follower. <laughs> I personally be. think the yeah. world has gotten more chaotic. There's more trends. There, I mean. The great greatest example that I can come up with is here I am, boring Tom, doing his little percent of equity risk controls to try to put a very small position on across a lot of markets. And along comes 2020, which was the year of COVID. We have the COVID crash starting in February, March, April, maybe May, and it just plummets. And I'm trading futures and I'm trading short stocks and uh, my hedges are going net short as fast as I can take them off. I am just cleaning up on the COVID crash. And then what do you see on Twitter? Everybody saying, well, I don't know if this is the end of the crash because, you know, COVID looks really bad. The whole world's, you know, may die. Um, we're going to have to at least test this bottom before it goes up. Well, guess what? It didn't test the bottom. So all those chart readers that were looking for the W, the, the, the test of the bottom, never saw it. Yeah. But my indicators are based on just moving average volatility. Yes, my stops were a little farther away, but eventually they got hit. I got in. I was 100% invested. Futures all reversed. They went the other way. I ended up with 103% return that year. And wow. I'm the same boring guy then that I am now. And I can tell you right now, my last 12 months as of yesterday afternoon was something like 9.9% for the last 12 month running. Well. <laughs> same guy, same levels, doing the same thing, two different results. One is because the markets gave me that opportunity and my indicators exploited it. And I just went along for the ride and, and did what I do. This year has been a little bit more rough. You've got uh, generally a down market, which has been profitable on the side of it, but there's been some choppiness on that downswing. So there's been some sideways in there that cost me some. So I've got a, you know, an okay year for, for me, 9%. If I finish the year at 9%, I'm totally delighted. I don't, it's not going to change my life. So you know, COVID was an interesting time that not only chartists, but even the value investors started talking about W-shape recovery and, and <laughs> waiting for the markets to crash to put the where, money back to use. <laughs> where, where does that fall in the value investing handbook? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. I, yeah, I mean, I, I saw some, some fund managers selling out of the positions which they called as structurally buy and hold stocks. Uh, you know, that, that you should hold for a lifetime. And then they sold it in a matter of 30 days, saying the world is going to end for them. So I always, I find it humorous that uh, when people say, I'm not a trader, I'm an investor. And I say, well, what's an investor? Well, I buy it and I hold it. And I said, are you going to die sooner or later? Yes. Well, then your stock's going to be sold. You're a trader. You're going to buy and sell. You got to have a plan for buying. You got to have a plan for selling. And I don't care how long it is. You're a trader. 
just quit with the the investors like an excuse to turn your brain off. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Manish, you wanted to ask something on the tools also, right? You said you wanted to ask Tom on the tools he used. Yeah, I just wanted to know if somebody is interested in creating his own trend-following system, uh, what, uh, what, what languages, uh, software languages he should be learning? Okay, I'll, um, I'll answer that a couple different ways. First of all, depending on your level of uh, computer expertise, many of the trading platforms, just like I use Interactive Brokers uh, Trader Workstation, there's lots of trend-following models that are built into the system, and they will give you your buy and sell signals, and you can set them up, and you can use a simple spreadsheet to calculate your position sizes so you don't have to get really super complicated computers. If you are going to try to automate it fully, so you're going to integrate your buy-sell engine and your indicators together with your uh, position sizing and have it spit out an order and queue it up so that you can just hit the transmit button and you're all done, uh, that's a, a bigger level. But uh, there I would probably look at C-sharp as probably the most powerful and most um, comprehensive or flexible of uh, the things you can do. There's lots of tool tool packages for that. You could uh, you you could certainly hire a lot of C sharp programmers out there. That they're all over the place. Microsoft has made the C sharp uh, language uh, completely public now. They're not uh, possessing it like they did. One of the reasons I shut down Trendstat back in the day was simply that Microsoft bought out Fox uh, Fox Pro. And they supported it for about two, three years. And then all of a sudden said, no, now we're going to do, we're not going to do this Fox Pro anymore. It's too close to uh, Visual Basic. So you need to convert your stuff over. We're no longer going to support Fox Pro. Well, my whole business was based on Fox Pro. So that I was facing a prospect of probably hundreds of thousands of dollars in a few years of work to convert over to Visual Basic, which would be the, the analogy. And then I would be at their, their mercy still because Visual Basic was owned by Microsoft. They could shut down Visual Basic and say, nah, we're just going to all do C Sharp. We're going to shut down uh, Visual Basic. So the reason I look for a public available you know, where all the code is available, the operating system's known, and it's out in the public, is that it no longer is under the control of one company. It's, it's a community. And as long as the community keeps enhancing it and making it better, I think that would probably be a better way to go for being robust down the road with your strategies. So I would learn C-sharp and probably do my programming there. And I actually have taken some courses in it. It seems pretty straightforward to me. I don't, I, I'm not built anything. I'm working with another guy I'm consulting with now to produce an in-the-cloud trading platform, simulation and trading platform, so that not only will I use it, but I'll be able to recommend it to people and hopefully uh, make it easier for people to try to do some stuff without having a knowledge of computers. Stoic Talks has been partnered by DSP Mutual Fund, which was an obvious choice for us, having worked with the DSP team earlier and recognizing how they are obsessed with helping investors take better decisions. Some examples of their motivation to help investors do better are visible in their research-related work, 
which they make available for free, including Getting Smarter, Tathya, Report Card, their Invest for Good blog, among others. We thank Team DSP for supporting this episode of Stoic Talks and recommend that you follow them on Twitter at DSPML. Great. Uh, this is uh, interactive broker is for uh, for the order execution. Tom, uh, I was asking, uh, what do you do for backtesting? For backtesting, um, I again, I'm working with this guy that's been two years now working on a project that we hope to have out in the next year uh, to the public. But I get to use some of it to test it out, and that is what I use for some of my testing. Other, depending on the test, a simple spreadsheet. I mean, back when I started, an Excel spreadsheet was a pretty clunky thing, but, you know, if you have 64 gigs of, uh, of uh, RAM and uh, the latest version of uh, Excel worksheets, you that's a powerful tool. You can do a lot. And so you can do some simulations uh, involving multiple decades of data and get an answer and all it takes is a simple spreadsheet. So you can piece together and cobble. In fact, a lot of times when I used to program in Fox Pro or Visual Basic or whatever, I would start with a spreadsheet just to test out a concept a little bit and then I would apply it more globally using the programming. So I think there's, you don't have to jump all the way to fully automated robotic trading right out of the gate. There's sort of a walk before you run uh, uh, thing that you can do to just build yourself up a little by little. And one of the reasons I did the enjoy the ride uh, on the website, the enjoy the ride world right here on my shirt. Um, I have, I put together a spreadsheet of it's called, I think uh, ETR tools for Excel what I did that for was not to give somebody a globally perfect trading platform or anything, but was to show people how you can take a spreadsheet, a simple spreadsheet, and you can do a lot with it. You can, you can run several trend following models. You can certainly position size using it. You can uh, look at return to risk ratios. You can just, there's a lot you can do. And it's just a matter of how much do you want to take it to full automation. In a trendstat days, we were highly automated. Uh, we ran 80 futures markets and we ran countless mutual fund positions and uh, 30 different currency pairs and uh, across five, six different strategies for hundreds of clients. I mean, you're talking a lot of data going on and you better be on your game and processing data. Uh, I've got four clients. I got two accounts for my wife, two accounts for me. This is easy <laughs> compared to what I used to do. So um, I, I think it's just a matter of starting wherever you are at this point in time and building to a different uh, future if that's where you want to go. Actually, Tom, you know, you, uh, you took my next question. Uh, I wanted to ask you about ETR and wanted to you know, take what's, what's, you know, what is your intent with ETR? Uh, the, the title name is very exciting. Enjoy the ride. <laughs> and you certainly do it very well. I, uh, I mean, I, I don't know what all things you don't do. I mean, you're cooking, reading, <laughs> golfing. Uh, uh, it's great to see your life, if, uh, you know, evolve the way it is. So just tell us about ETR. 
All right. Well, ETR started out with me helping out my uh, stepson and my brother-in-law with some advice on when I put the hedge on and off. And uh, some money management friends of mine, after I had retired, kept in touch with me by way of social media. And it was Facebook at that day, in those days. So I decided, all right, I'm just going to put my, whether I'm long, short, you know, up direction, down direction, hedge on, hedge off, make it a little tiny snippet. It won't take me long and it can go out to everybody. And, and what the money managers started saying wow, that's great. You know, so one leads to another. Pretty soon I've got, you know, a number of thousands of Facebook followers trying to get my signals. And I realized there's a limit of 5,000 on your personal page. So I had to create the Facebook enjoytheride.world page so that I wouldn't be limited by the 5,000. And at the same time, one of the, my former uh, friends, well, my friends, he's still a friend, uh, says, you know, there's a lot more financial discussion going on over in Twitter you probably should put your posts over there as well. So I did. I had zero Twitter followers. I now have 46,000 Twitter followers. And um, as Musk points out, probably some of them are robots uh, <laughs> or bots. But um, the, the, the essence of what goes on there is there is a lot of financial discussion on Twitter. I'm also on a number of other social media sites, which don't really amount to much, LinkedIn. Uh, is mostly people trying to sell me website enhancement, it seems like. It's, a, it's sort of a waste <laughs> of time, it seems. And, and a lot of them are from India, by the way. Um, but what, uh, you know, the, the, the reason Enjoy the Ride came into being was one time I had a hedge, and it was a whipsaw trade. I put it on. Market came back roaring upward. I took the hedge off. Stocks were up so much that day, I actually made money that day really well because the hedges came off and the stocks just went crazy. And so I kind of relayed that in the message. I said, well, looks like this hedge trade, which, you know, was doing well for a while, now had to come back off. It's a whipsaw trade. These are part of trend following. Um, my stock side of the portfolio is going crazy. Enjoy the ride. And everybody... Loved it. I got comments about, oh, that's so cool. Enjoy the ride. Yeah, that makes sense. That's what we really do as traders. So I used it again. And I did it a third time. And everybody started, uh, you know, really liking that. And somewhere along the way, I because of the 288 character, which I limit on uh, Twitter, I hate that. Uh, I guess I'm long-winded or something. But I don't like all the cryptic abbreviation stuff and the limits. And uh, I got to the end, and there was no way there was enough space for Enjoy the Ride, which is a lot of space. So I just put capital E, capital T, capital R. I go out and go golfing. While I'm gone, some Twitter follower says, what is ETR? One of my other followers says, enjoy the ride, dummy. <laughs> and at that point, I knew that ETR has been tattooed into my uh, forehead I am now Mr. ETR I guess and now I get all sorts of I mean I just I see people quoting they'll say something and then they'll say as Tom Bossa would say enjoy the ride people use it all the time <laughs> now in trading and it, it just encapsulates it so when we were trying to figure out my wife and I were trying to figure out how to deal with the increasing amount of emails that I would get from traders around the world asking questions about how to position size or whatever 
I said, you know, this is getting to be a little burdensome. I'm getting six, seven of these a day, and a lot of them are the same questions over and over again. And uh, we were in Malaga, Spain at the time on vacation, and we uh, were kicking around ideas. And I said, it's got to be asynchronous. I don't want to have to be in the office every day. I want to go out and golf. I want to go out and prune the bushes in the front yard, do other things. I want to go cook dinner, whatever. I don't want to be sitting here just answering people's questions. And she said, well, you know, uh, Lawrence has his trading mastery school. And he used to be in Malaga, Spain. We were visiting him. And uh, I said, I don't want to do a school. I, I mean, I could do that. And I could do it on Zoom, but then I'd have to be there Monday morning at 8 o'clock or whatever for the Zoom call with all the students and find out what they did for their homework last week or whatever. <laughs> That's the job. I'm retired. I don't want a job. And so we came up with a website, and then, uh, and then she said, well, why don't we call it enjoytheride.com? Well, that was taken. .com was taken, but .world wasn't. So it became enjoytheride.world. And ETR is enjoy the ride. And uh, that's how the whole thing evolved. And what I'm trying to do with that is just help traders with trader education. Yeah. I've got videos <clears throat> that I tried to produce there that were pretty hard to, to produce. They're a little more expensive, but I got recommended reading that you can go buy them yourself, whatever you want to do. I've got uh, inexpensive little webinar recordings that I cover a certain topic, and I'm going to be doing a lot of more of those uh, going forward as soon as we get the right combination of studio here. Um, we're going to probably be rehabbing a new house down in the Phoenix area, and that'll have a production studio so that I can awesome. do uh, even easier interviews. My wife will have a production office that's separate from mine, so there's no echoing of the mics and all that stuff. But that's where we're just using it as a retirement website. Uh, I don't get rich off of it. Um, it's just a way of me communicating a lot of stuff to a lot of people and not having to answer emails one at a time, which gets to be, you know, a little. I'm pretty good with a keyboard, but but you if must the volume be glad finally you're Finally, you are Mr. ETR from Mr. Serenity, right? So <laughs> at least that title is changed now. <laughs> Well, people still call me Mr. Serenity, too. I, I'm tagged with that one, I, I guess, thanks to Jack Schwager. But yeah, Jack's a, yeah. a and, good and, friend. And I, I like. think Michael's book uh, did a lot of justice to the title itself because he he actually made us see why you are called what you are called. So, uh, in fact, I think in the introduction, he said, you ask Tom the time, he will tell you how to build a watch. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my wife would say that. My wife's favorite <laughs> saying lately has been, you don't want to be in Tom's brain. <laughs> yeah, that was great for us. That was great. Uh, great, Tom. Uh, I, actually, one last question. Are, do you have Italian parentage? Uh, your name is Basso. I mean, is, th is that where it comes from? So, yeah, the Piedmont region, the Piemonte, uh, ah, up by okay. uh, uh, Torino, just south east of Torino in a small village called Ponte Carone is where my grandfather and grandmother grew up. Wow. Okay. And but you have always been in the U.S. Yes, I am 100% U.S. citizen. Uh, my father is 100% uh, U.S. Oh, citizen. Okay. He's passed, uh, re, you know, back in 1999, I guess. But um, yeah, he was born in the United States, uh, in a little just on the west side of Syracuse, New York. Oh, great, great. Well, very um, uh, heavy concentration of Italians. 
there. Everybody has a, an A, an E, an I, an O, or a U at the end of their name. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Great. Uh, I, I, uh, Manish, you have any questions? I'm done with my questions. Uh, I have a lot of technical questions, but I'll leave Tom to answer that sometime later because uh, it's already running a lot of, and, and the markets are crashing. I don't know what Tom wants to do right now. <laughs> So, <laughs> I've so. already got a plan. Uh, my plan's <laughs> yeah. in place. I, everything that's happening today has been planned for. So, wow, great, great. Thanks a lot, Tom, for for your time. It was great talking to you. We okay. loved it. We'll again do something sooner with you. And looking for your production office to be in place, uh, and and maybe something else together. Uh, last question: Who else would you like us to profile? I mean, people you admire. People who have a lot to tell, you know, uh, who would well, I think Lawrence Lawrence uh, has a very good insight into a lot of things. Um, I've always liked uh, some of the stuff that Michael Deaver, I used to know him back in the industry and I heard him uh, do a, a seminar with, uh, now he's a futures trader, but he does some other stuff. Uh, he's out in Pennsylvania and he always had his head level headed and it's, um, you know, type of guy. He's, he's a pretty good with a lot of concepts. I think I'm trying to think of who else out there that, um, I, no, nothing's coming. No, I mean, no, you can always, I mean, uh, we can always get in touch on a mail and maybe you can recommend yeah. people to us. Uh, yeah, exactly. Or, or you could throw yeah. out names and I could say, well, he's going to be a little more interesting than this guy, whatever. But I, you know, I'm retired from the industry. So there's a lot of people out there that are probably excellent that I might not even know of because there's no reason for me to know of them unless they've befriended me and asked me questions or something. I, I wouldn't know. Um, the, the Van Tharp, uh, like R.J. Hickson from Van Tharp Institute is an interesting guy, and he, he'd be pretty good to, on the mental side of trading and peak performance. Um, so he knows a lot about that topic. I don't know. Shoot me an no email. Worries, no worries. <laughs> yeah, I will do that. I will do that. And... Um... Uh, so when is your next golfing book or are we expecting some other book from you now? <laughs> no uh, other golfing on maybe. <laughs> something on cooking You know, maybe? I did I did that golfing book on putting because I, I used to putt um, in championships. I used to do just ah, putting okay. in, in what called putt-putt championships back when I was in high school and early college. And so I became very, very good with putting and therefore I wanted to always stay good with my putting. And I wrote that book to, so that I have something to read myself when my putting got a little off. I could go through and, oh, yeah, that's what I forgot. I, I, I'm doing that. I'm stupid. And uh, so it's a way of giving myself a putting lesson. And as long as I had the book written, as long as we had the website, I thought, well, why not just go ahead and make this a PDF and people can buy it if they want it. Just one more thing on the uh, website. So that was been the early days of the website where I was just looking for anything that made any sense at all to put up in the store so that I'd have uh, things for people to look at and decide. And I, I've actually sold a number of the putting books and a number of people have written me back saying it's really helped them. So I'm always awesome. trying to be helpful. Yep, yep. Uh, Tom, thank you for taking out the time for us. It was uh, very insightful. 
uh, really appreciate it. We had a great time. Absolute uh, pleasure, Tom. Absolute pleasure to get in touch with you, to learn from you. Uh, looking forward for a lot of such exciting, enticing sessions. Uh, and all well, the I best had fun for, as well. Yeah, all the best for your uh, retirement journey. You are doing all the things everybody wants to do and keep inspiring. Thanks a lot. It does not suck to be me. I, I have a good life. <laughs> yep, yep. Absolutely. Right, Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Thank you. All right, thanks. Have a great night. Yep. Bye. Bye-bye. This audio podcast is for general information purpose only and contains the personal views of the spokespersons. Do not construe this as an investment advice. Listeners before acting on any information should make their own investigation and seek appropriate professional investment advice before doing so. Any sectors, stocks or issuers mentioned do not constitute any recommendation and DSP Investment Managers Private Limited, the AMC, may or may not have any future positions in these. While utmost care has been exercised, the spokespersons or the AMC do not warrant completeness or accuracy of the information and disclaim any liabilities, losses or damages arising out of the use of this information. Past performance may or may not sustain in the future and should not be used as a basis for comparison with other investments. Mutual fund investments are subject to market risks. Read all scheme-related documents carefully. 